Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fucknicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I am uh, doing it. I'm in it. I'm here. I'm present and accounted for. The world is kind of pressing. Pressing on all of us, right? Like a fucking knee to the back of the neck. I mean, it's hard enough, right? It's hard enough dealing with what we're all dealing with pandemic-wise. And now this horrendous act of murderous violence, which demands a response and a protest and a reaction and justice. It's hard for me to fucking wrap my brain around all of it because I am consumed with my personal grief. So I have to stay in the present, man. I have to stay so in the present. Because if I get any, even 10 minutes ahead of where I'm at right now, you know, the darkness can envelop me. So I've been doing what I can. And I'm not trying to diminish anything that's going on in the world. Can't, can you? It seems correct to me. There can be power there. This reaction in the streets was coming a long time, and that is the power of people up against what keeps looking more and more like a fascistic government evolving. But like I said, it's very hard for me to sort of see past my selfish pain. And even, even as somebody who doesn't believe in God, I, uh, I have been known to hit my knees occasionally, something I learned early on in my sobriety. Doesn't matter if you believe or not. Humble yourself before the universe. Surrender. Engage your humanity. Ask for help. Ask for guidance. Ask for strength. Keep walking forward. Keep breathing. Not beyond me to do that. I've done it. But God damn, it feels like things are breaking down. And that's why I have to be careful 
in some degree for myself in this state of grief. My perception is not clear. There's part of me that wants to just kind of veer off into the hopelessness, veer off into the nihilism, veer off into the depression, the darkness, the self-pity. But instead, I think about Lynn, I think about people fighting back, I think about love, and I think about um, cake. Cake has been helpful. Somebody sent me some boxes from Katz's Deli in New York with some babka in there, chicken soup, matzo ball soup, and babka has been very helpful. Someone sent me biscottis, great. Homemade jam, I'll take it. Trying to stay out of the darkness, stay in the strength, stay in the cake. My heart goes out to people in the fight. It does. I'm sorry I'm not out there. I'm fighting for my own mind right now. On the show today, I talked to Jeffrey Wright. This is obviously a talk that happened before the shit went down with George Floyd and the protest, but Jeffrey's been very active on Twitter. He's a fighter. We talk a lot about his uh, relief organization, Brooklyn for Life, which was established to provide food for frontline workers during the pandemic. You can check that out at brooklynforlife.org. He's on Twitter now, fighting the good fight. You might know Jeffrey from uh, Westworld or the James Bond movies or on Broadway. He's currently in the movie All Day and a Night, which is now uh, streaming on Netflix. I'm a huge fan of his. He's always good. He's always good. And Lynn actually made me watch, because I'd never heard of it, this uh, Ride with the Devil movie. It's an Ang Lee movie, a Civil War movie. And uh, it's a complicated movie. And she loved it. And she, we watched it before I talked to Jeffrey. And I thought it was great. It's a tricky movie because it's really about the rebels, the bushwhackers, I think they were called. It's sort of a pro-Confederacy bunch. And Jeffrey plays a, a, a black man among a Confederate sympathizing group of guerrillas, really. Fighters, guerrilla fighters, basically. But uh, Lynn loved the movie. It's an Ang Lee movie, and she made me watch it. And uh, I thought it was great, and I thought he was great. So it was interesting to see that, because and I talked to him a little bit about it. So this is me talking to, uh, to Jeffrey Wright. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something 
to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the way we do it. My, my fear is that, uh, is that people will get too comfortable with this. I think that's valid. Yeah. And and not want to do anything in person again. Right. Right. You know, as like a, as, as a friend of mine said, man, I've been practicing social distance for, for, for decades now. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is cool with me, you know. Yeah. Yeah, bro. There is something uh, comfortable about it. I mean, I, I, you know, I started my career as a comic just wandering around doing nothing. And uh, I like doing nothing, to be honest with you. I always thought that I was working towards doing nothing. So this is sort of a dry run of doing nothing yeah that uh was the original plan for me too and it was cool <laughs> it was cool for about a week and a half and uh right. I, you know the i think it was a couple of things well primarily the constant like grinding drone of those daily press uh press briefings out of the well, White those House. Those are terrible. Yeah, yeah. You know, that just drove me. I, I realized I had to do something else uh, for the sake of well, my Well, yeah, health. no. And I think that doing something, you know, active, I, I mean, I just meant in a sense that if there weren't a plague, I would be, uh, I would be fine. Like, it, right. like, there's something very comforting about the fact, uh, outside of the plague, that I'm not doing anything and I know for a fact no one else was fucking doing anything either. So the race is over. We can all relax. Day 100. But then there's the plague. Then there's the plague. And then, <laughs> and then there's also, you know, the economic pressures on, uh, on, on communities and others. But you're absolutely right, man. Terrible. It's, I mean, it is, if it, it is an opportunity to, you know, for reset, like on a personal level, but also on a collective level. You know, the way I look at it, I you hope know, this, so. this COVID, uh, is a, fucked up dinner guest but it, it makes some interesting points you know as we look around and, yeah for sure and and see the ways in which nature is shifting you know you've got oh, this, this yeah. thing. You've got dolphins in the bosphorus fate uh straits now yeah. you know instead of oil tankers you know it's like you know you see you you, you know you were looking at the at the lockdown in in the hubei province in china and all of a sudden the skies were clear you know and the, the CO2 emissions were, were, it's like, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I really hope that, I, I wonder how many people collectively will take to that. I mean, you know, until, it seems that until the, the, the bulk of the people everywhere realize that their leaders are trying to kill them, uh, that they, you know, won't be able to see this clearly. But, but it really is sort of astounding and beautiful that nature, how quickly uh, it, it kind of bounces back in Yosemite. The bears are back. And, you know, it's as soon as people leave, the animals are like, holy shit, this is fucking great. Yeah. The, the, the animals are like, um, 
oh, the virus is gone. <laughs> you know, their, <laughs> their, their pandemic is, uh, you know, they've come through the other side. They're done with their social distancing yeah. now. You know, they're locked down and they're like, okay, all right, back to normal. You know, I mean. Exactly. Thank God. About time. It only took a, you know, a couple hundred thousand years. Right. But we got rid of those motherfuckers, you know. But then the question, though, becomes, yeah. you know, you know, it will. Will this be an opportunity for us to rethink on a, on a number of different different levels, you know, individually and collectively uh, when we come out of this? Or I hope so. Or will you know will the machine take over, you know, and and like drive us back to those same you know narrowly focused, narrowly interested policies and measures that you know. <laughs> In some ways, got us here in the first in the in the first place. You mean the uh, you mean the uh, death march? Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. <laughs> you know. Well, what is your? What I mean, how are you uh, engaging with? Uh, you know, obviously, I, I'm trying to do good things, uh, but uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's hard to know where to start. But you know, you said you just got off a call with uh, with uh, Congressman Jeffries. You know, how are you engaging with the apparatus there? Well, um, yeah, we just got off a really um, informative uh, and also at times pretty emotional call um, with about 200 small business owners here in Brooklyn um, that the, the congressman put together. Uh, we had a conversation a couple of days ago. I'll tell you why that was. But it was a, it was a, it was a productive call at, in which a lot of these small business owners were expressing their frustration. Uh, at not having access to the PPP funds and the various, uh, you know, resources that, you know, are allegedly being made available to, um, to uh, you know, businesses of that scale. Um, and, yeah. and they're, you know, they're folk, you know, one woman in particular in the call, call I think she had a, guard, a garden center uh, uh, here in, in Brooklyn. And, you know, she's saying, hey, you know, my, my, uh, my uh, internet just got cut off. You know, I, I, I applied twice. I got rejected. You know, phone's about to get, you know, these people are in, you know, in dire straits and, and reaching out, uh, obviously, to the congressman for, uh, for assistance. But the way it came about was that, <laughs> you know, I, it's pretty simply, really, I was trying to help a friend <laughs> over here who's a restaurant owner. My friend Michael Thompson, he owns a spot called the Brooklyn Moon here in Fort Greene that has been in the neighborhood for 25 years, uh, you know, kind of a, yeah. a local institution. And we used to, when I first yeah. moved here, I first, well, I first moved here in 1989. Uh, then I moved back to Manhattan. When my son was born, I moved back here because, uh, it, you know, it was a little leafier, a little less stressful than Manhattan. So we, I've been here for about 20 years now. And... Yeah, we used to play. Ch we used to play chess at Mike's place. There used to be a group of us going to play chess and drink whiskey, you know. And so we've been friends for you know since then. So he's not a delivery oriented business. He's more of a social gathering uh, space. So uh, I, I said, Mike, you know, we're about to go on lockdown, bro, because I've been kind of tracking this thing, you know, for a while. And I said, you you need to start thinking about how you're going to convert to delivery, you know, full delivery mode, and I'll help you. Uh, you know, uh, boost uh, awareness of that via social media. So he did, 
you know, we went on lockdown. Next day, I was like, how'd you do today? You know, he's like, yeah, man, I, 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 I had five orders. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> that ain't going to do it, you know, unless you're selling like, you know, uh, meals at $10,000 a plate and it's costing you like 500. That ain't going to work, you know. So uh, <laughs> yeah. someone notified me on Twitter that that ever so useful machine uh, that it is cesspool, yeah. uh, rotten but sometimes useful uh, thing. So someone notified me that another friend uh, who owns a restaurant called Graziella's here, a guy named Vito Rondazzo, was asking people to call in, customers to call in and order pizzas on behalf of Brooklyn Hospital over here, which I can see you know, out my window through the trees. And so I reached out to Vito and asked him what was up and, you know, asked him if he would connect me to the hospital because I had assumed, you know, that the hospital didn't need food because they had a, got a cafeteria. But he he connected me with a guy over there, senior vice president for external affairs, a guy named Lenny Singletary. He's just been amazing. And the three of us met the next day and he said, listen, we got people working 15, 16 hour days. Uh, many of them are not going home, staying in hotels nearby. Restaurants are closed. So if you if you can augment our cafeteria with 200 meals per day, it would be most welcome. So that's how it started. Really, it was like, OK, how do I help out my my dudes? You know, and, you know, so I'll boost it on social media. I'll put a GoFundMe page together. You know, maybe we can raise some money for these two restaurants to provide a couple of hundred meals yeah. to one hospital. OK, so then. We're like, well, we got some other friends in the neighborhood. You know, there's other food I like, you know, that 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 fried chicken, that peaches. You know, I want to make sure that that's there when this thing is over. You know, that hot Nashville chicken, Brooklyn style. I yeah. want that. So let me reach out to them. You guys need any help? They reached out to other friends and it just, you know, kind of uh, blossomed from yeah. there. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams reached out, you know, when he caught wind of what we were doing, said, hey, this is great. Can you, we'll help you take it borough wide. Like, oh, okay, all right. So now you know we're up to uh, we're up to a circle of about uh, of over forty restaurants. We are providing twenty five hundred meals per day on average to um, wow all eleven FDNY EMS stations in Brooklyn. And as of yesterday, I think now 11 medical facilities here in Brooklyn, one actually uh, of those actually is in lower Manhattan. And, uh, you know, we passed the 75,000 meal mark just yesterday. And that's all since March 27th. It's so amazing that, you know, because food is so important. And it's so connected. You know, it connects people. It makes you feel better. And, and people who prepare beautiful food of any kind, you know, put so much heart into it. And there's that human connection and just basic sustenance. It's a beautiful thing, really. Yeah, it's, you know, basic sustenance. You know, you, you can't make a good dish without a little love in it, you know, no matter how many you're making. That's you know? right. And uh, yeah. And, that, and so how is it all funded? It's all funded through donation. Yeah. So we set up the GoFundMe page, I think, March 25th. Fifth, and you know, so um, we've raised about two hundred and seventy-five thousand on that, which has been incredible. It has been, you know, been um, largely uh, donations of less than a hundred, you know, hundred dollars. You know, I'm sound like uh, like Bernie now, you know, but it's been yeah. like you know, folks throwing in five bucks, ten bucks, fifty, a hundred, a couple of bigger ones. Then we set up a five hundred one c three. Uh, you know, uh, not for profit, you know, Red got that up and going on the fly. 
And so we've had direct donations now to that, some larger donations. So Daniel Craig, for example, was one of the first folks that I reached out to. They said, Daniel, hey, we're doing this thing. We, we, we're, we're, you know, we've got some, uh, some good traction here. Will you help us out? So he's thrown in a good chunk. You know, Spike, uh, Spike Lee, uh, who grew up in this neighborhood and whose headquarters for 40 Acres and a Mule is in, is in uh, Fort Greene. He threw in some money. Jay-Z gave us a little money. Uh, a good, you know, good, good amount of money, uh, and uh, and some other folks. You know, I'm doing, you know, throwing in a, a nickel or two here. So we've got, um, we've raised about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in total, evenly split between those big donors and the smaller donors. So it's pretty cool, pretty democratic in that regard. Wow. Yeah, that's that's what it is. But you know, it's really just been a grassroots thing, man. And it's like these these restaurant owners taken you know just jazzed to be vital at this time even more so than than usual uh obviously you know they're supporting the front line and at the same time they're supporting themselves but they really feel that they're on a mission you know and it's it's kind of cool because it's a bit in some ways a kind of circular altruism uh you know uh circularly altruistic kind of model because you know we the community that are supporting them with our donations are as well looking after our own interests too because we want those hospital workers to be uh, as empowered as they possibly can for, on our behalf you know and we want our economy too uh, to be as stable as it you know can be given the circumstances so whatever we can do to support them supports us too so you know it's been pretty it's been pretty cool the way the things played out and also like you know here I am talking about doing nothing and, and having a reset or whatever but you're you know you're in it and you're a community uh, activist and you're you know you're you're facilitating a, an amazing thing you're busy you're you're adapting and uh, and and putting yourself out there and helping out yeah, I'm busier than I had planned. Yeah, it's you know, but it's been <laughs> it's it's definitely you know definitely true. But it's been it's been cool. The organization, by the way, is called Brooklyn for Life. So if you're interested, you can go check us out at brooklynforlife.org, or you can go to our GoFundMe page. You know, GoFundMe Brooklyn for Life. But if you go to Brooklyn for Life, okay. brooklynforlife.org. You can uh, you can you can see the GoFundMe page there. Also, there's a there's a, a, a video that uh, that we put together. It's kind of a celebration of Brooklyn and kind of a you know rallying cry at the same time. So you can check that out too. You know, everybody from everybody from James Bond to Big Daddy Kane came through, but also representatives of the restaurants and the EMS stations and doctors and nurses made sure that their voices were uh, were uh, were as prominent as as ours so that you can check that out it's pretty cool yeah yeah but yeah man so i've i've been a little i've been busy but it's been good cuz i it's i've kept the television off cuz i was about to throw wine bottles at that fucking thing if i kept it on too much uh, longer so it's been healthy for me yeah i can't yeah i, I didn't i didn't watch any of them yeah i did not watch one of those briefings because after a certain point you know what's yeah. up, and it's then you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this to <laughs> yeah. myself every yeah. day? Yeah, we do it. Is is this hate buzz helping anything? Yeah. You know, is this anger buzz helping anything? It, it, exactly, and you know, so what I, I what I've what I've hopefully been able to do is channel that rage. Yeah, it is rage, you know, through this thing yeah. in a, in a cr constructive, creative way, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, hey, it's very clear early on. And particularly after this call too, you know, uh, that I just got off with off with these uh, 200 business owners, 
you know, okay, the government is supposed to, you know, have our best interests. We understand what government is ideally for. But in this case, with this leadership, you know, you can't rely on on that necessarily. And and damn it, we'd take it up and do it on do it, you know, do it ourselves and get it done um, because, uh, you know, this thing is uh, is just a, 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 you know, a clown show, you know, doused in kerosene. You know, it's, you know, uh, the, 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 the one that I watched that was useful to me was I think it was March 13th. The Rose Garden thing, the, I guess it was the first of the Rose Garden press conferences when all, there was that parade of CEOs from Walgreens, Walmart, CBS, and all these people who were like, you know, like ushered out as somehow uh, healthcare uh, saviors. Uh, you know, the, the guy from Walmart. Yeah. Okay, My- cool. You know, so I was in London, <laughs> right? We were filming Batman over there. And uh, I had been coming back and forth. Uh, we started filming January 5th. I'd made about four trips back, and I was kind of worn out of coming back and forth to check in on my kids and my aunt. My 90-year-old aunt lives with, with me here now. Anyway, I uh, saw that press conference. I think it was March 13th after work. Got off work, came home, yeah. watched that thing. And I was yeah. like, what the f- What? I, yeah. And I immediately, when it was over booked my own flight home from London. I was like, man, we got to get out of here. And I started sending notes to producers. I'm like, bro, we have to get out of here because either we're going to get stuck over here. Uh, you know, the UK wasn't included in the travel restrictions at that time, but the rest of Europe was, which like made no sense whatsoever, uh, sense whatsoever, completely arbitrary. So I was like, man, we got to get out of here. We're either going to get stuck we're going to get forced into quarantine or something like that. When we got it, but we need to go now and get back because you know it's uh, you know yeah. the uh, lunatics uh, you know have taken over the asylum and uh, it's not yeah. going to be it's not going to be pretty. So anyway, that was useful to me. And you got back. I got back. Yeah, the two right. days later. Well, you, you got it. You got ahead of the curve. Yeah. So I, I noticed that, like you know, you know switching uh, topics. Like I noticed that both of us did that uh, Finding Your Roots show. Like, oh, I yeah. was just on it as well. Yeah. And uh, and my experience was, I didn't know what to expect, really. And, you, you know, I didn't know, you know, like, uh, you know, I, you think you know about your family, or at least, you know, as, as a, you know, basic, uh, you know, Jew, I kind of know where the Jews <laughs> come from. Basic but <laughs> Okay, right? Okay. You know, it's like it's gonna be gonna be Russia or Poland or Germany. Where are we at? <laughs> right, you know, so, right. but you know, but, but I the nuance of it. The, weren't you uh, sort of amazed at the research that those guys could do? Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It was pretty incredible. With you know, what'd you learn, man? Well, we learned a lot. Learned a tremendous amount. It was an incredible gift. But there were a couple of specific things that were uh, that I found that I found interesting. Obviously, for me personally, um, one was. So, so he, he centered on my grandfather to some extent, and my grandfather was—he uh, was an incredible dude, man. He was a waterman, uh, as were I found out. You know, generations of my family down in Virginia were watermen, oystermen, crabbers on the Chesapeake, the Lower Chesapeake Bay. Right? He was that. Yeah. He was also a farmer, and he was a—he uh, was a, a liquor guy. So, you know, back when I was in the seventies. You could, you, you know, there were no bars in, you know, this very rural section of York County, Virginia. 
and you had to get liquor from the ABC store, the state run store. I used to go on runs with my grandfather, you know, and, you know, along this road, it was essentially one road community. Essentially, there were houses that you could stop at on the way to your house for a shot. For a 50 cent shot. So my grandfather's yeah. uh, house was one of those houses. You know, there was Morris Combs up on the corner. Next one was my Uncle Ivy. He always had a little bit of something. And then, you know, uh, my grandfather. And so people would come out of the water, you know, off the water or out of their fields or from the shipyard or wherever they were working. They would gather. And it was just a crazy, incredible scene, you know. Just like st- yeah, story yeah. and drink and madness and, you know, but, but in the best way. So I learned that my, so my grandfather, prior to my being born, had been a moonshiner, which I knew, right? Oh, he had a still okay. back up in the yeah. woods, you know, and he, right. he, that yeah. he made, you know, he put his daughters through college and his sons, you know, voc- one of his sons vocational school. And, you know, he was, you know, he was doing okay. <clears throat> but, yeah. but what they, what I learned was that was how he learned to make whiskey. And this was oh, and this wow. actually relates to today in some ways. I knew that my grandfather um had stopped going to school uh when he was 14 to work. He was born yeah. he was born in 1904. Stopped going to school at 14. What year is that? 1918. World War 1. Well, yes, and the flu pandemic. Oh, the flu epidemic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So his father I found out died of influenza. No shit. His mother, um, my great grandmother, took up whiskey making to augment her income, and he learned to make whiskey from his mom after her after her husband died. And I was like, "Whoa! Wow! Yeah, you know? Wow! Yeah, I thought that was uh, I thought I I had never known that. I just knew he was skilled at it, but now I know why. You know." Yeah, I found out that uh, some of my great great grandparent uh, Jews actually worked in oil fields in Belarus in the Ukraine at uh, one of the first major Soviet oil rigs. Wow. So there were J- Jewish wildcatters in my past. That's the way I'm going to frame Jewish it. Jewish wildcatters. That's <laughs> There you go. So you come you grew up in the Virginia? Uh I grew up in Washington DC. Um, but I, okay. but I spent a lot of time down in York County, Virginia. My mom would, would, you know, the school would end. She'd drive me down there and then she'd turn around and go back uh, to DC and I would stay there for, in, you know, the entire summers. That was like, you know, that was, that was my routine and it was, you know, it was amazing down there. It was like, it was like uh, heaven for a kid, you know, it was just like wood, woods, yeah, woods and creeks. It's all now been, you know, overrun with, uh, you know, developments and, you know, the, cookie cutter things and the, you know, the, the, it's, yeah, it's really kind of fascinating because all of those fields that I remember being corn fields and the like are now, um, these, you know, subdivisions. And so the food that was being provided there is no longer there. Those subdivisions are now, you know, they're buying their food. The people from those places are buying their food at the, 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 you know, the Applebee's and the whatever else and all these other places you know, it's kind of like cancer on multiple yeah. levels, you know, like you, you, you yeah. fly over and you see how, you know, this, the, these subdivisions have taken over this beautiful part of the, uh, you know, part of the world. And uh, they look kind of cancerous to me on the rivers. And then, you know, just the ways in which all that organic produce and stuff that was being 
you know, that was being consumed down there. All that stuff is gone in exchange for, you know, the uh, the big, uh, you know, the big kind of chains and all that stuff. Agribusiness. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. Now it's got it. It it, it takes a bunch of. you know, uh, uh, hipsters and sort of uh, post hippie young people to kind of get back to the uh, organic nature of things. And then it's sort of a boutique sort of business where theoretically, if everything was won properly, we'd all be living like that. Yeah. But uh, that is uh, not the corporate way. Yeah, and we were <laughs> we were living like that, yeah. you know, and it wasn't yeah, it wasn't sure. it wasn't a thing. But you you asked me what they're, they're, about you, the research down there, you know, that they did that skip yeah, people did. Yeah, I'll tell you, yeah. I'll tell you a quick quick thing that um, that uh, I'd like to just to to kind of explore more. So he told me about a my grandfather's surname was Whiting, and he told me about this. I think my great great grandfather, whose name was Beverly Whiting, who had been uh, a a free a free man. Right prior to the Civil War, because you found him in the census, didn't? It, but then, as you go further back in the census, he disappears. So he was, you know, uh, he became free at some point, and then he disappears into the bondage. You know, uh, pri- prior. Don't know what happened. Curious. But this name Beverly Whiting, you know, Beverly. I thought it was. It was like, ah, interesting name. Um, so I started kind of digging around. Um, no, actually. I, again, back to Twitter. Somebody saw the the show and DM'd me and said, "Hey, did you know that your uh, ancestor Beverly Whiting fought in the Civil War uh, with the First Colored Cavalry of Virginia?" And I was like, "Oh, wow!" So I dug in and I looked around and was like, "Huh? Uh, it was a not. It was a different Beverly Whiting." who lived in the neighboring oh. county, Gloucester County. Uh-huh. My grandfather was born like on the border, like across the river from Gloucester in York County, but right on the edge there. But there was another Beverly Whiting. Then I dug around again. I saw, I found a, 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 a third Beverly Whiting, which, who was a young boy, what? young boy who was taken on a ship to New Orleans, a slave ship. He's listed among the inventory. Right. Because even uh-huh. though the international slave trade had been abolished, there was still domestic trade, slave, slave trade uh, allowed in this country. I forget exactly when, but it but it, it, it was allowed uh, even after the abolishment of the international slave trade. Then I found a fourth Beverly Whiting and I was like, where's this name? Beverly? Yeah. And the fourth Beverly Whiting was white guy. Right. Born, I think. It was in 1707, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 1707. This Beverly Whiting, right, I think might have been the namesake for these others. Because, and I need to understand, you know, because obviously the name Whiting comes from, you know, some migrating Brit, you know. So, uh, if you, slaves, and this guy was a slave owner, slave owner, you know, the name, you know, doubtless these Beverly's were related somehow, perhaps somehow, um, but or at least on the same uh, on the same piece of property. Exactly, exactly. And and do you know who this Beverly, this uh, white Beverly, white Virginian Beverly Whiting was? No, it was the godfather of George Washington. What? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, wild man. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's something I need to like dig down in a bit more. But they, they, you know, Skip Gates and those folks led me on that uh, journey. It's it's so wild, you know, that that so much, I guess, of the African-American stories, you know, you can't get back to Africa that easily. So you're going to end up in these colonies. Yep. You know, there's only you know, there's only a handful of places you're going to end up that at where the beginning yep. of that story in America happens. Recording of it, you know, is these things just disappear back, you know, as you the farther you go back very often and we become mysteries to ourselves. You know, it was another interesting thing he showed me on my father's side, who they were from the Carolinas, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, that there was a guy named Workman, Workman McDowell, which is a hell of a name, you know, antebellum name for a black man in this country, Workman, you know, (laughs) but he he too had been free at some point prior and you know and and then disappears as you go back and in trying to track him they found a mcdowell family that was a slave owning family that happened to live according to these records right you know five miles or a few miles up from where workmen uh lived right so the assumption was that you know might have been uh, on that uh that estate or whatever and he showed me um a census record from that plantation or whatever it was, you know, state farm, yeah. whatever the heck, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it. So, um, right. And it has the name of the McDowell, the names of the McDowell family. And then it has 54 essentially blank spaces with young man, uh, uh, black male, 26 girl, black 13, you know, but no names, just 54 blank spaces. One of those blank wow. spaces, it seems by age, might have been Workman, my great-great-grandfather. But, you know, that's to your point. You go back and what do you see there? You find, the, you know, the attempt to render people invisible. And they kind of, yeah. you know, just vanish in the, back into the mists of history. It's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. But like Workman, that's like a that's like a title. It was probably a title before it was a name, obviously. Yeah, or it certainly was. You know, like that's what the guy did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or it certainly it was a directive. Yeah. 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 But that's but that, these are the similarities. So, so how did your folks get to a D.C.? I mean, D.C. How- my my mom came up to D.C. in 1957 to go to. uh to go to law school. Um, yeah. She graduated ha- what was then Hampton Institute uh, down in uh, Hampton, Virginia. And then she came up and uh, she went to Howard Law School, uh, graduated there in 61. And then from there went to work for the U.S. Customs Service. She was the, I think, third woman customs law specialist, first black woman customs law specialist then. And she and my aunt... Uh, who uh, came up uh, maybe a few months later, uh, was a nurse at D.C. General Hospital for uh, 35 years. My mom was at Customs wow. for 32, 34 years, whatever it was, you know, forever. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's they, so the, I was raised by my mom and, and my aunt. Uh, they, you know, they came up and they lived together in D.C., um, you know, from 57 until my mom passed uh, last fall. Yeah. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah, thanks, man. So, the, where was the old man? Where was he at? He, my, my, my dad died uh, in '67, 
Uh, he oh, really? uh, and my mom were actually separated pretty early. You know, when I started to uh, when I started acting, uh, one of his best friends uh, from who grew up with him in Greensboro, North Carolina, said uh, I told him I said, you know, OT, I'm uh, you know uh, you know. I uh, think I'm going to start acting. Yes, you know, I really dig this thing. He said, well, he said, your old man was, uh, he said, uh, your old man was a bit of a song and dance man. He just never made it to the stage. <laughs> you know. So it kind of, <laughs> as far as he describes, came naturally. Um, but, uh, but when he, when he died, he was actually, um, he was here up in, he was here in New York and he actually was oversaw sales for Rheingold beer here in Brooklyn. That was uh that was his oh, really? that was his gig. Yeah, he was a sales executive at Rheingold. He did some other things too. He used to run a uh a bar down in the village, a place called Romero's, that's kind of a storied place. Uh, you know, he was a man about town, you know. He was sure. one of those guys. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. The man about town guy. In in fact, this picture here is if you I don't know if you can see it in the background that picture there I've kind of pushed yeah. stuff aside side you know these interviews and stuff that I've been doing but uh yeah. that picture is to my dad that's one of the few things that I have from it and that's Miles Davis playing guitar shirtless oh yeah it says to Jimmy from Miles yeah take all the money all 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 <laughs> that's what that's <laughs> So he and me and my dad were apparently pretty tight. And uh, when my uncle, his, his brother, passed away year about 20 years ago or so now, I went down to uh, his, uh, his funeral down in Greensboro. And there was a guy there named Buddy Gist who was very good friends with my dad and with my uncle and had traveled, was tight with Miles. And Buddy was a bit of a yeah. song and dance man himself, from what I understand, you know. And, uh, but he was, you know, he, one of those guys, you know, and, uh, and I told him that I had this picture. He said, you got that? I said, yeah. He said, he said, man, I traveled with my, he said, you got something. He said, cause man, I traveled with miles for 35 years. I saw him sign three autographs. So he said, yeah, you got something there, man. But, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. So, so your dad was running with a pretty, uh, pretty fun and fast crew there. Yeah, he was a he was um, you know, as as I understand it, he was uh he was a pretty, you know, pretty well 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 liked, you know, well loved guy. Probably a little bit too much, which uh, you know, might not have been good for him at the end of the day. Well, it's interesting that you took it upon yourself to do all this research because I mean, some people don't do it, you know. Some people who have, you know, parents that are absent, they're just like fuck them. But like it's nice that you kind of got a full kind of sense of who he is or who he was. Yeah, maybe some of it is mythologized too, but he kind of had a bit of a mythic thing about him. You know, people like, you know, people have, you know, still, like, when I mentioned that he was my dad, if I've never met him, they like, they brighten, like, eyes brighten, and they have oh, some yeah? kind of crazy story. Like, I, I met this guy uh, at another funeral, because this is how you meet me to be a uh recently, who um, he said that. He knew my dad, and he and he said, "Man, he said I had just gotten out of the army." <laughs> he said, "This is I guess it was the Korean War, maybe." He said, I "Just gotten out of the army, and I had saved up some money. I 
think he said he had saved up like four or five thousand dollars or something like this. Maybe I don't maybe been you know whatever the number was, but it was a significant amount of money. He said, "Yeah, I saved up this money, man." He said, "And and and, and your uncle and your uncle and me, we went up to uh, to meet your dad up in New York." He said, "Yeah, <laughs> that money was gone by the end of the weekend. <laughs> they were just living." It. Who knows what they were doing, but he was that kind of guy. But that, I mean, but again, he like just came to life. He was laughing and came to life when he when he thought about him. So, but at the same time, uh, to so your fun. point, you know, yeah. I'm you know I, I you know I, I kind of missed him in some ways, but at the same time, I never knew him. And and I think maybe the influence of my mother and my aunt was probably a healthier one on for me. So uh, you yeah. know, it, uh, it it's all well, good. It's all good. It's sort of fun. It's sort of amazing though, because like there is um. Like, oddly, one of the performances that I can never get out of my head that that you did was, you know, around a father-son relationship was it, it was that moment, those moments in um, Syriana mm. uh, with with, you know, which is a side story to your character was is this alcoholic father. Mm. But that, you know, that thing was so loaded up. Yeah, there was so much you, know, you know, sort of you know horrific anger but yet at the same time the need to take care of this guy almost out of a a lack of you had a choice but but you still did and it was causing that character to eat himself alive a bit yeah you know do you do you remember you know reaching into yourself to find that dude well, you know, sure. I mean, that's part of the gig, right? You know, you kind of take yeah. uh, you take from those um at least those rooms that you have that are filled up with those, you know, thoughts and emotions and things and experiences and you try to pluck whatever would fit into um whatever story you're trying to tell. So, yeah, that was um yeah. But, you know, and that's that's not an unusual story for you know a lot of a lot of folks in our country, a lot of you know, black men, particularly in our country, in terms of complicated relationships with 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 their fathers, complicated relationships with, you know, um, uh, males in the family who kind of lose track, you know, and uh, and kind of go off the rails a little bit. Yeah. The new movie is about that, too. That's heavy, man. That all oh, day yeah. and night is like. Holy fuck, man! That's a that's that's hardcore movie, dude. Oh, did you see it? Yeah, I saw oh, it. Oh, yeah, cool. it was great. Oh, cool, You're, man. That was an amazing uh, performance on your part, but also that kid. What's his name? Oh, Ashton. Ashton's yeah. He's he's yeah. super bad, man. Yeah, he's a great. You know, he was in Moonlight, and uh, yeah, I thought his performance in Moonlight was just like so stellar, and uh, I was like, whoa, this. You know, I, I was surprised that. He didn't get more, you know, not that it matters because it's, you know, it's ridiculous. But if they're given those things out, if they're given out the accolades, you know, give them out to, yeah. you know, give them out right. You know, and uh, I thought yeah. he was, uh, you know, you know, he's, yeah, but that's, you know, it's funny. I was just watching, uh, they asked me to do this thing and I was just watching uh, um, uh, Sid and Nancy, you know, Gary yeah. Oldman, Gary Oldman that. Chloe Webb and that that movie made fifty percent of the budget, right? That uh, and 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 no one got recognized for their performances or direction. I was like, "Are you?" I mean, you know. So you know, I remember talking to Gary one time when we, I think it was when we were doing Basquiat, and he was like, he was like, right, you know, I've got 
I got, you know, talking about awards or some, I don't know how it came up. He said, yeah, I've got, you know, three, three, every performance I've ever given should have been, <laughs> should have been awarded, you know, but, uh, but I really, you know, yeah, Ashton is, Ashton is really a, a wonderful young actor. And there, there, there is a slew of those young actors out here now, black actors, particularly who are doing some interesting stuff. Like, I, I don't know, I don't know anything about that life. So anytime that I get something and I look at it and I can see there's an authenticity to it, uh, you know, it, it really kind of affects me in, in an eye-opening way. Well, this movie for me was really in some ways a kind of companion piece uh, to another film, actually two other films. One hasn't come out yet, but the, 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 the film that really piqued my interest even more in this side of this kind of incarceration, uh, you know, uh, cycle of criminality and violence story was uh, OG, which was a film that we shot in a working maximum security prison in Indiana and largely with uh, co-stars who were incarcerated men. There were only three of us who played incarcerated men who were, you know, had the freedom to walk outside the gate every day. Everybody else was in. My co-star was serving a sentence of 65 years for attempted murder. I think his sentence has been extended now. That's another story. But um, all of these guys were, you know, serving long sentences. And I went to the prison over the course of a year prior to uh, prior to um, uh, filming to meet with them and talk with them and understand their stories a bit and, you know, figure out if I could find a way into it. And uh, and in talking with them and then, of course, we filmed for, you know, 13 hours a day, six weeks on the inside and talking to them, they were almost consistently they would almost consistently describe um, the influence of their fathers um, as being problematic, Uh, you know, parental abuse, parental drug, uh, you know, neglect, you know, uh, drug abuse, all of these things. And so um, this story all in all day and a night is, you know, I was playing an incarcerated man in OG, but a father in, uh, in this who ultimately is, you know, uh, winds up, uh, you know, incarcerated with his son, which is another story that I saw in, you know, in the flesh inside that prison. But yeah, yeah, this story was, you know, just kind of looking at it from a different angle. And, and, and it was really in, in, in some ways driven by my experiences with those guys at Pendleton out, out in Indiana. That, that like I performed once in a prison and the, you know, the, the, the shift in the way the culture of prison works in, on, in, in terms of energy, when you enter that building, the sort of electricity of it is completely uh, was overwhelming and disturbing to me. Uh, yeah. You know, I know there are a lot of people, you know, like it's like it's its own organism. Yeah. You know, in terms of how life works. Yeah. And, and the air is super, super heavy and charged. I mean, like you can right. physically feel like that energy you talk yeah. about. Yeah, it's super, it's super hardcore. And, uh, but you know what? The weird thing was, the thing that was really startling to me um, was that, you know, we would film on an active cell block, for example, you know, the scenes that took place inside the cell. There was, you know, a guy next door to me who was serving time, you know, on either side, right? And I'm walking around in the onesie and stuff. And they're like, hey, bro, can you, you know. And this is evenly split white and black because in Indiana, the demographics were interesting. You know, you rural, poor, urban, poor, you know. And there's a guy, he's a, this guy, uh, white guy. He's like, hey, 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 brother, 
you, uh, you, you, you got any books? I read all my books. You got any books? He saw me coming by. He thought, you know, because we're, I'm like, uh, actually, yeah, bro. Well, yeah, man, I actually, I do. So I went back and I found some, <laughs> what did I found? Some, there were some Westerns that I had in there and I had Moby Dick and I had something else, you know, as, as set pieces, as props, you know? So I kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. I wasn't supposed to do it to give it, but I kind of backed up to him in the counter and like slid on the books. He's like, thanks. Thank you, brother. And the guy next door, he goes, he goes, he, he thinks you, he thinks you want a bus, bro. I'm like, you know, yeah. yeah. So anyway, but, um, but, uh, the, but, but, but to my, your, your point about the, the intensity in there, the thing that I found shocking was that when I was inside the cell and if we had a little bit of downtime in between shots, setting it up, I would stay in there because we didn't have any, you know, there's no green room or anything. There were no trailers. So yeah. I would hang in the cell. They would close the gate, you know, we were still crew and we had one guard who was, you know, there. And I would just chill there, rest, read, you know, whatever, you know, I had music. There was a TV. I watched the, uh, I think the, the Democratic uh, Convention, you know, watched it. And I realized yeah. in that space, you know, had, you know, little, some snacks. I realized you could actually get used to it, you know, and you could kind of sure. settle in. And that was really that kind of jacked me up a little bit to see how easily you might adapt to being confined in that way. That's why those guys sometimes have a hard time coming out, too, because all of those decision making processes have atrophied for them. And, you or, know, they that, come or out they never had like, them. Right. Right. And they certainly weren't exercised in there and they come out and it's like, you know. It, it leads to, you know, it's at times to recidivism if they haven't uh, been able to, pro, you know, to, to, to adapt. They adapted in there, but adapting on the outside is even, yeah. even more, more tricky. Yeah. So when you started acting, like, what did you, when did you decide to do it? Like, you just, were, were you in high school? What happened? No, I was in college. I was a junior in college. Yeah, I was a political science major in college and then freaked out one day and started acting, you know. Yeah, you freaked out. I, what do you mean? No, out? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how I got here. No, it was, you know, it was something that had been in the back of my head that I was kind of a, I don't know, uh, I was kind of afraid to like jump into it. Really, I always went to plays with my mom as a kid. She would take me to all the shows that came through DC. You know, all the yeah. big musicals like. You know, The Wiz and Bubbling Brown Sugar, but also like I remember seeing Give Him Hell Harry with James Whitmore, you know, about Harry Truman and 1776. Yeah. And uh, there was, a, I think, uh, Avery Brooks did a one man Paul Robeson uh, show. There was, you know, I mean, uh, just a variety of stuff. Intozaki Shange. I mean, she took me, she just took me to, you know, to everything that came to town. And I always, th those, those experiences were always deeply, deeply like meaningful for me. And I was always enthralled by it in a way, probably that was over a little over the, you know, my, it just, you know, my, you know, even after the curtain dropped, you know, I was always, yeah. I was sure, I was sure that that world had been, that, it, that had been created on stage was carrying on, you know, even after the, so I was, I was well, <laughs> well into it, you know, but I never did anything in high school, man. I never did it. I was always like, ah, you know, I couldn't, I, you know, was a little bit, you know, yeah, until my junior year of college. And uh, one day, um, a friend of mine took this acting class. And in the, I think it was in the, if I remember, in the uh, fall semester. And uh, school? at the end of the, uh, I went to Amherst up in uh, Amherst okay. College. Oh, yeah. In, oh, yeah. oh, really? You're up there? Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, so at the end of at the end of the semester, they put on a production. So he asked me to come see his, his see him perform. I said, "Yeah, man, I'll come." So I went to see. I said, "Damn, I can do that at least, you know." So the next, <laughs> so the, so <laughs> so the next semester, I took that class, and uh, and I also did a play uh, that was directed by a, a student, uh, a guy named Kevin Frazier, who actually uh, passed away of AIDS uh, a few years after I graduated. But uh, beautiful young guy, and he adapted a Wallace Terry uh, novel called Bloods that was recollection of recollections of black Vietnam veterans uh, about their huh. experiences in the war. He did a, he kind of wove together a night of monologues. That was the first thing I did. That was my junior year. And then, you know, it was like, yeah, I kind of, you know, kind of, this kind of makes sense to me. And so I've been doing it ever since. Did you, did you train it all after? Well, yeah, I went, uh, I left, uh, graduated, um, I went back to D.C. Uh, and I my first gig down in D.C. was Children's Theater. Actually, I was on, you know, I was, I was touring here. I'm, you know, be with this B.A. in political science running around doing Children's Theater for like, you know, preschoolers and, tea and you know, up to, you know, elementary kids, American history, you know, uh, through folktales. And uh, and I was waiting tables at night. And then I got a, a uh, like a bit part at uh, an All's Well that Ends Well at the Shakespeare Theater at the Folger when it was there. And then I got a gig in Lorraine Hansberry's last play, a play that she wrote as she was um, as she died, called Le Blanc. And that was my first like kind of significant role. That was at Arena Stage, which is kind of a storied theater, regional theater in D.C. And because of that, Zelda Fitchhandler, who found that founded that theater and at the time ran the uh, drama department at Tisch at NYU, the grad school, invited yeah. me to come up to uh, to go to go to school. So that's how I came to New York. Uh, she gave me a full ride. I came up to uh, to you know I think it was July Fourth weekend of nineteen eighty eight to New York, and then you know was in you know enrolled in enrolled in school that September of eighty eight. And I quit after two months, and uh, I left to do that play Le Blanc up in Boston uh, because I, I I just thought I, I I you know I did better working than I did you know kind of you know acting in a classroom, and so uh, I came back to came back to New York here to Fort Greene uh, like January February of '89, and I start and I kept working in the theater. I would go back to Arena Stage. I would go up to Yale Rep, uh, like like every year for three years. Lloyd Richards, who was the uh, artistic director uh, at the time at the at the Rep and head of the drama school, they'd give me a job every every year. So my training took place in that way. And the people, the directors that were hiring me, were very often teachers themselves. Uh, you know, like you know, guys who taught up at Yale. Or um, you know, a guy who took me under his wing was a uh, who kind of mentored me. A guy named Joe Dowling, who uh, who was uh, uh, Irish. He had run the Abbey Theater in Dublin, and then later came over here to run the Guthrie Theater for many years out in Minnesota. But he took me under his wing. You know, he gave me my first piece of Shakespeare, and you know, they were they were. I had a I had a number of you know uh, early directors who really you know. Like took an interest in me and and uh, and 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 you know and shared shared a little little knowledge with me. So that's that was how I trained. So that's interesting. Yeah. So you had you know, so it was almost like 
you had the obviously the basic raw talent to do it and you were effective at it but every time you were able to work with a, a director of a certain ilk uh you were kind of molded a bit and given new tools yeah 100 percent. so i did theater as pretty much essentially for seven about seven years i did a little bit of film here a little film there but from the time i was like 21 to like you know it was like boom it was until basquiat i was 28 I think 28 or 29 when I did Basquiat. And so it was like pretty much all theater, regional theater. And then finally, you know, Broadway with Angels in America was like at the end of that seven year period. But, uh, and that was like, you know, that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, uh, a university in and of itself, that experience, you know. Like doing like with Shakespeare and stuff, what do you do? You, so it's interesting because I'll, I'll ask actors about process and, you know, how the, ultimately everyone's going to put together their own, you know, set of tools or however they're going to do it. You know what I mean? There's no way to say like, well, you do this, you do this, you do this because everyone's going to do it their way. But, you know, from taking from all these different people, you know, and adding it to, you know, your natural ability. I mean, what do you remember every time that you go into a role you know, how do you start and, you know, where did you get that information? Like, do you do you look back at the people that guided you early on? Is there any bit of information that, you know, really stands out as like that? That was that was it. Well, I mean, I think you, you, you put it all in the in the in your pocket, you know what I mean? And you pull out yeah. as, as needed and it all kind of merges together, you know, um, so many great influences and also other actors that you work with. I mean, for example, you yeah. talk about Shakespeare. One guy who taught me perhaps more than any other one individual about performing Shakespeare is somehow is, is someone you probably wouldn't expect. And that's Chris who? Walken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, again, Joe, this guy, Joe Dowling, gave me a, a gig, you know, bit part, Shakespeare in the Park. I think I was, I don't know, 23 yeah. years old, 20, whatever it was. And Chris Walken played Iago to Raul Julia's Othello. And I talk about this with, um, with like, if I, if I talk to, you know, young, you know, actors um, now, you know, sometimes I'll go and, you know, talk to a class. And uh, I'll talk about Walken, particularly um, relative to Shakespeare, because, you know, Walken's from Queens, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Chris... A song yeah, and dance, man. It's Chris. Yeah, badass, yeah. But... When he does Shakespeare, um, he's not interested in any affectation, you know. It's Chris Walken. Zvlads, but you'll not hear me. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and he, pers he personalizes that language and just kind of destroys any unnecessary reverence for it, which is particularly important, I think, for an American actor to claim yeah. it in in his own voice and in his own rhythms and his own tones and i mean right. he's 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 one of if not the smartest actor i've ever uh had the the the, the privilege of working with and uh yeah you know cuz you know there's nothing more annoying than seeing an american actor do some kind of faux fake ass british weird half british accent when doing shakespeare you sure know what i mean it's just so unnatural and weird you know it can go either way you know i'm not a big shakespeare guy but the few times i've seen americans do shakespeare like i think i saw william hurt do one of them i don't richard the second or something i was a huge william hurt fan it was back in when i was in high school probably 
And it was almost impossible to decipher what the fuck he was doing up there. But that might have been because it was Shakespeare. But I knew he was mm. personalizing it, you know. But I, mm. I, I've always had a problem with Shakespeare until Ian McKellen sat across from me and did it in my face. Like I told uh. him, I said, I have a hard time following the language and he did this monologue right to my face and i'm like okay i get it i get it yeah yeah if it's done if it's done right it's clear yeah and so like with the angels in america i believe i probably saw you in that because when did that when what year was that man that was like that was 1993 and that was the first you were original cast guy I was original Broadway cast, yeah. I didn't do it out in L.A. I didn't do it up in uh, San Francisco. But when it came to Broadway, yeah, I was in the original Broadway cast, yeah, for a year and a half. Yeah, seven hours play, a year and a half. So you were there. So you were there. Did, were you part of him, sort of workshopping it as well, Kushner? Well, when we when when they came to Broadway, there had been another actor who was playing. You know my. Uh, the Belize, uh, who you know, beautiful actor, but you know, they decided to make a change, you know, and so I um, got the role. And uh, as George Wolf said, I, 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 you know, he says uh, uh, in in the casting process, he said, I, I saw eight thousand Negroes. I chose you, <laughs> you know. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, uh, so we were so so Tony was still working through. The script. They were still script changes, but um, you know it was largely as you know as you see it now. However, when we did Perestroika, the second half, um, there's a there's 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 a there's one particular scene that he kind of you know I guess says he wrote for me, uh, which was pretty which was pretty incredible, pretty gratifying. Oh, wow. It's a be- beautiful piece of writing. It's a heaven a description of heaven that uh, Belize, the character who's a nurse to uh, dying uh, Roy Cohn, uh, who's dying of AIDS, and, and Cohn, Roy in his hallucination, hallucinatory state kind of comes to him and, and you know, Belize just de- describes to him his idea of heaven, which is not uh, what, uh, what uh, Roy Cohn's, uh, doesn't quite match his expectations. It's a beautiful piece of poetry, dramatic poetry. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was new, you know, Tony wrote that and said, here, yeah. I, wrote, I wrote this here, read it. And I'm like, wow. You know, because we were, because we, because what we, what we did was we did the first, if I recall, we did the first part for about, we rehearsed for three months, then we performed for three months, then we kind yeah. of backtracked a little bit and we performed half the time and we were, or we performed during the day. Sorry, we were, we performed the first part at night and we yeah. rehearsed the second part during the day for another three months and then until we had, had both parts up and running. So, it was pretty crazy, uh, crazy, but super fun process. And Kushner was just coming into like you know his whole trip. Do you are you like do you are you guys friends? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, we reach out from time to time. I see him here and there, but yeah, yeah. I mean, those guys. I mean, Kushner, George Wolf as well, who directed. George is the godfather to my kids now. But yeah, I mean, those guys. Pfft, those guys changed yeah. my changed my changed my life and like changed my whole you know molecular structure in profound ways you know with uh, with what they with what they gave me. Well, I mean, like molecular structure in the sense not just career wise, but in terms of what you're capable of as an artist. Yeah, sure. That and just as a as a human being, as a citizen. You yeah. Know? I yeah. mean that pay that 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 play is very much about citizenship. Um, yeah. and, and it was also, it kind of afforded me this, uh, gift or curse. I don't know how every way you look at it of, of, um, 
of expectation that you can merge politics with with you know creativity. These might you know two interests of mine that they can be merged, or in fact they should be merged. You know, particularly you know in urgent times, and so that was a real you know license um, from you know that I got from from them from you know from Tony's you know writing. Uh, particularly that, you know, this was, this was, this was the, this was right, you know, and it was necessary, you know. How, how often does that happen? Um, it happens, uh, you know, <laughs> at the same time, I'm, I'm someone who tends to see politics and everything anyway, you know. Right, right, I mean, right, you know, sure, uh, yeah. you know, there, there's political elements to Westworld, you know. Um, you know, sure, the, the, of this, the, the film, uh, all day and the night, you know, there, obviously there, there's a political undercurrent to that, you know? Um, yeah. so I watched, uh, I watched uh, ride with the devil recently. Oh yeah. 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 That's, I, that's yeah. a kind of a unique, interesting movie politically and, and, and racially and, and American history wise. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that movie. I think I have a particular place in my heart for it because it was undermined by the studio um, because of some of the kind of peculiarities of it that they didn't know quite how to deal with, you know. You know, that you had this black character who was fighting on the side of the Confederacy just kind of blew their fucking minds, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, this kind of, you know, quasi-liberal, you know, just all of, like, the constructs that they, you know, understood history to be and also understood in terms of... Um, the, the the alliance, you know, you don't make a movie where the heroes are, are Confederate rebels. Yeah. But, in you know, and but in fact, you know, for me, what the story was about, particularly relative to this black character who was actually based on a on a scout, uh, a, a historical figure who um, who rode with uh, Quantrill uh, in raiding Kansas. Uh, God damn, his name escapes me, this guy, this guy. But um, was that he was a guy who wasn't waiting to be emancipated, you know, by the great white savior. But had to go through, you know, do the hard work of emancipating himself, you know, of winning his right, own freedom. Right. And that's for for me, that was so much more powerful. But for them, they couldn't quite, uh, you know, they couldn't quite palate it. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, they took me like, you know, the weird shit happened. They, you know, they took me off the poster. It was like me, Toby, McGuire, Skeet Ulrich, Jewel, myself, you know. And they yeah. just kind of took me off the poster one because it, I don't know. I guess it was for their like kind of market sensibilities. They couldn't figure out how to market that to that you know young white kid out in Kansas or Minnesota or whomever they. It was like oh, some wow. weird, really weird, stupid, fucked up, racist bullshit, you know. And then uh, they decided they decided not to release the movie fully. And but it's a beautiful film. Ang Lee, you know, kind of an outsider looking in at American history and uh, in a in a really nuanced way. And it's the last. Uh, American film about the Civil War of the 20th century, you know, but, uh, you know, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. Now, let me, can we just talk about um, the uh, the Muddy Waters role for a second? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. The, were you a Muddy Waters fan? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who isn't? Who isn't? We all are. Yeah, I know, we, I even, know. Of even, course. If we don't, even if we don't know it, you know? I and and what did you learn about him going into that that you didn't know already? Well, um a hell of a lot. I mean, I, you know, I didn't realize at the time, I don't think that he was, he was illiterate. Couldn't read or write. His dude oh, yeah, could yeah. not read or write and ends up essentially rewriting 
the, you know, the direction of modern American music, you know, and could not read or write. I mean, these guys, what I came to appreciate about those guys, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, those guys, though, though I saw them as almost as like, uh, it's just like, you know, as heroic, as artist, as hero. I mean, what they did coming from where they came from nothing and creating the soundtrack out of that to American freedom, this idea, at least, that we aspire toward, you know, so cut to the Berlin Wall and they're playing, you know, rock and roll. They're playing Muddy Waters music because that idea of freedom that they were able to articulate musically, right, was based on a history, personal history and a collective history in this country born out of slavery. I mean, those guys were bad ass, as bad yeah. as it gets. I mean, just, <laughs> you know, come on, man. And, and, yeah. the, and change the whole world, you know, change the way we hear music, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, globally. Badasses. I mean, just incredible. It's so it's always so bizarre to me that the, the, the kind of strange, sometimes tense, but but seemingly uh, symbiotic relationship between Jews and uh, and African-Americans and modern music. Yeah. You know, like the chess guys. Yeah. You know, because at some point, like, I, I don't know if it, if you read about that, like, you know, like Muddy used to paint the fucking walls at chess records. Yeah. Right. You know, before like before he made it big, you know, he was just sort of a guy who would sit in with the band and work around the office and shit. But it's just sort of this weird kind of uh, relationship that is uh, sometimes exploitive, but seemingly you know, mutually beneficial. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't always in all circumstances the coolest, you know, the coolest alliance, you know, but it was, you know, no. kind of a, a necessary symbiotic one, you know. It was definitely that. Yeah, but then, of course, right. then there are other instances in which, you know, you look at, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Blue Note Records. Look, yeah. But you also look at the like the Freedom Riders down in the south, you know, Goodman, Schroeder yeah. and Cheney. And you see, yeah, you know, that yep. was an alliance of yeah. a different type, you know. So they're yeah, complicated like everything, you know, that relationship. But yeah, with the chess guys. Yeah, they took they yeah. took they took them guys. They took some of the guys for for a ride, you know, pretty much, you know. You know, no pretty doubt. much all of them. No doubt. And, but, but likewise did, you know, you look at, you know, look at Led Zeppelin, look at the Stones, all of this, yeah. all of it is derived from Muddy Waters, you know? And, but you know uh, what's weird about the Stones is that, you know, they they brought a lot of people to, the Stones were always really kind of like, they would, you know, they would, uh, you know, name their sources, bring them on the road yeah. with them celebrate yeah. them make sure yep. people knew what was up yeah it's complicated it's complicated but they made a whole hell of a lot more money than those guys did you know to have the capacity to be able to to give them that gift you know what i mean and That's i think there true. were some loss there were some there were some lawsuits i don't know if it was with the stones but i think muddy and i think and maybe led zeppelin you know like all these riffs that i grew up thinking you know squeeze my lemon you know the, you know led zeppelin was like wait a minute God. yeah it was there was definitely they ripped off that whole riff i think it's a willie dixon song is that right but like you know a whole lot of love yeah. you know that's that's muddy waters yeah, yeah. you know 
The Rolling right, Stones, the, right, na- right. the, the name right. derives from a uh, tune called Catfish Blues. That name, that's yeah. Muddy Waters. I mean, it's incredible. Like a Rolling just, Stone. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, it's just uh, just incredible, incredible. And, and from absolutely nothing, digging it out of the Mississippi dirt, man. Yeah, yeah, it's fucking beautiful, man. It's a beautiful yep. story. So, you, you did you guys finish shooting Batman or what? No, we uh, we were in. Uh, I think our whew, I don't know, oh, third month. You know, I guess we've been going about two and a half months, and uh, we you know hit the brakes. You know, uh, so we'll go back, and we've got about like three. We got about another four months to go. You know, uh, once and we you're get playing back. Commissioner Gordon. I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, having a ball. We were we were having a ball. Man. Yeah, yeah. When was the last time you watched Basquiat? Uh, actually, it was within the last year, right? And you know why? Uh-huh. Yeah, because I hadn't seen it uh, in a while, and I was actually out to dinner with uh, Wes Anderson and another filmmaker, a friend of his, and and they were talking about this, talking about that, and somehow. Uh, Julian Schnabel came up in the conversation and I was like, yeah, Julian, you know, because we had, you know, we had a tricky relationship during the process of making that film and, you know, kind of since like, you know, gotten, you know, past that. And uh, and uh, one of them said, well, yeah, you made a beautiful film together, though. And I was like, huh, yeah, it's like, oh, really? You know, I was like, wow, it was, a, it, was, it, was a, it was kind of a, it was a, you know, it was a lovely thing to hear. And so I said, well. And I went back and said, "Let me watch that thing." And I was like, eh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, "Yeah, it's pretty good." Wait, what, you yeah. get you you and Schnabel had problems. Yeah, well, you mean it wasn't? Yeah, that was a that was a complicated situation there on a number of levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. But it was like, complicated. because he was a painter. Well, you know, Julian is a better. You know, he's a you know he's a certain personality and uh, yeah. And, you know, in some ways that was obviously a personal, you know, film for him to make. But it was very personal for me, too, because I, you know, I felt uh, yeah. a certain kin- kinship with uh, with uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat and his story. You know, yeah. and I felt there were aspects yeah. of it that I knew that maybe he did not appreciate, you know. And so, oh, interesting. Yeah. you know, and it's his first film. I, you know, I was, you know, I was, you know, I, I just... the. Done, I'd gotten finished Angel in America about a year before that, I think, and you know, I'm feeling my oats and stuff too. And anyway, um, at the same time, he's incredibly generous, you know, in terms of allowing me space to kind of research and paint, you know, and all, you know, just prepare for that thing. And you know, at the end of the day, yeah, it was complicated, um, but you know, uh, I think their relationship, his relationship with Jean Michel, was complicated too. So it kind of made sense. In a, in a, yeah, in a I gotta watch. I'm gonna try to watch that again. Oh yeah. Well, look, I'll let you get to your dogs and get to your life. That was great <laughs> talking to you. I hope you Thank enjoyed you, it. Well, I did, man. I, you know, I appreciate your uh, your interest and appreciate uh, the time amidst uh, all the stuff that's going on around us. You know. So uh, thanks. Yeah, bro. man. Yeah. yeah, I think. When do I meet you? I met you at a Netflix party or somewhere, and I came up. Ah, that's that, right. Oh, wait, maybe it was. It was. I think it might have been at the Emmys. I can't remember yeah. where, but I went out of my way. And yes, like, you hey, did. Man. I'm glad yeah, you did because yeah, yeah. there was a lot of weird well, but, stuff there, and you were not. You 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 were not among that weirdness. I appreciated meeting you. There. Yeah, I, I always feel like a, a tourist at all those things. Like I, oh, I don't dude. even know why I'm there, but I was happy to meet you. Get me back to Brooklyn, baby. <laughs> Get me back to Brooklyn. You know. <laughs> yeah. Great talking to you, man. Thanks, man. All right, keep well. Take care. Okay. 
Okay, that was Jeffrey Wright and I chatting, as I said, before the protests. But uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's a very engaged, active, smart man. He's also uh, in the movie All Day and a Night, which is now streaming on Netflix. And also, as I said earlier, he's uh, behind the relief organization Brooklyn for Life, which was established to provide food for frontline workers during the pandemic. You can check that out at brooklynforlife.org. And again, thank you, everyone, for reaching out and keeping me afloat during this time. And I hope you guys are taking care of yourselves and doing the big work and fighting the good fight and however you uh, find you are capable of doing it. Um, now I'm going to play a little guitar and, uh, and I'll talk to you in a couple of days. I miss you, Lynn.